Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. Welcome to the Newsmakers podcast. I'm Jess Baldry, and today I want you to think about the last time you had change, the shopping trolley, parking meter, or even a tip. Now, cast your mind back to the last time you made a transaction without cash. It's not surprising that the pandemic has accelerated the shift away from physical money-based economies. Today's Newsmakers guest talks about this transition in Luxembourg and globally and its growing importance as we tackle environmental challenges. In 2019, the Bahamas experienced Hurricane Dorian. Dorian hit the Bahamas on September the 1st as a Category 5 hurricane, causing flooding and mass destruction. Dorian caused about $3.4 billion in damages, which is equal to one quarter of the Bahamas GDP. This was not the first hurricane to take a new trajectory over the islands and to severely impact livelihoods and property. But Dorian sparked the realization that these types of hurricanes and natural disasters would become more frequent and much stronger in the future, partly amplified by climate change. And one of the many impacts linked to the hurricane was that existing payment systems did not function and access to banks, internet and infrastructure for card payments was down for quite a long time. So the Central Bank of the Bahamas has embarked on a journey to better stormproof their financial system. And this includes several actions, uh, but one was to push ahead with Project Sand Dollar. Project Sand Dollar, the digital version of physical Bahamian dollars. The idea is that any Bahamian will be able to make and receive all payments on his or her mobile phone or on a smart card. And this project uh, generates many benefits, but the Dorian aftermath demonstrates one major benefit, rapid payment system restoration after a disaster. The Sand Dollar is the world's first central bank digital currency being deployed. And it's been rolled out in a phased rollout to continuously match demand and supply and to ensure that this does not become a liquidity issue. So basically, a Sand Dollar will be stored electronically in mobile wallets, and when the rollout is complete, can be used as a payment method across the Bahamas. That was Joanna Nyman, Head of Inclusive Green Finance for the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, or AFI. This global network promotes financial inclusion for everyone and regulation. AFI opened its European office in Luxembourg at the end of 2020. At the time, Luxembourg Finance Minister Pierre Cramegna pointed out Luxembourg's role as a donor in promoting financial inclusion across the African continent. But it seems that Luxembourg can also learn something from the African continent and beyond. Now, Joanna, what have you seen happening in developing countries in terms of financial inclusion in recent years, and especially since the pandemic? So the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, we're a peer learning network of 100 central banks and financial regulators. At the core of what we do is to facilitate the central banks and financial regulators learning from each other in order to advance financial inclusion. And what's really crucial for us is that learning is beneficial for everyone involved. In many of the countries of the AFI network, um, we can see the pandemic has been sparking some innovation. But also from the start of the pandemic, we saw an increased use of digital financial services, including digital payments. And we can also see that throughout 2020, 
this increase has been sustained. That includes in Ghana, in Rwanda, and in Thailand. But across the network, uh, even far before the pandemic, we saw quite rapid progress and rollout of digital financial services. Uh, and this has massively contributed uh, to access to financial services. So in other words, financial inclusion in these markets. One good example we see is the rollout of mobile money, a form of digital wallets over the past decade, especially in Kenya, where it accelerated financial inclusion rates from around 30% inclusion to over 80% inclusion in a decade. This type of digital wallets, they did also significantly advance financial inclusion in Ghana. So our European office in Luxembourg, it's co-hosted by and closely cooperating with the Luxembourg Ministries of Finance and Foreign Affairs. And it's really well positioned to provide a platform for a mutually beneficial knowledge exchange between financial regulators in developing and developed countries. And as a part of Luxembourg's innovative ecosystem, AFI, we are bringing the voice of financial regulators from developing and emerging economies to the sustainable and inclusive finance discussions, which are led and advanced by Luxembourg in the European space. I'll just share one, one example with you what happened late in 2020. There was a, a specific event hosted by the Bank of Thailand early in December 2020, which was facilitating a dialogue between developing and developed country regulators, uh, sharing practical experiences on harnessing the potential of financial uh, technology and to deepen financial inclusion. Uh, this was held virtually, uh, but had a great participation from across the network. And amongst other things, they explored uh, questions of open banking, open application programming interface, API, electronic uh, know your customer, EKYC, and digital identification. A special focus was given to data privacy and protection, mitigating the impact and implementation of COVID-19 recovery measures. That's so interesting, though, that figure about Kenya, financial inclusion from yeah. 30% to 80% in a decade. So why and how are these developing countries leapfrogging parts of the developed world in terms of these fintech tools and adoption? And, and how do they do this while, while ensuring that the appropriate regulation is in place? Yes, of course, I think it's important to remember that there's no golden solution and no one size fits all. But something we have been learning from developing economies is that uh, usually they don't have the burden of a legacy system, which gives more flexibility, but also space for innovation. But also that innovations are more human-centric. They are driven by the demand rather than the supply of uh, financial services. And, and that is something we see is really important. What we see also right now is that some of the best digital payment systems in the world are located in developing economies. As I said, there's no golden solution. But one thing we've seen uh, being very helpful in the past decade is te a test-and-learn approach. So rather than just saying no, Rather than that, waiting, observing the financial service providers, observing the customers or the demand side, and then moving towards more robust regulation, governance requirements and policies. So this is the start to what we today call a regulatory sandbox. And this is an approach that is currently used all around the globe, but actually started in, in developing economies. So what can financial leaders really take away from these examples? 
throughout the AFI network and when connecting with financial regulators from Europe as well, we really see the importance of staying connected to global developments, being aware of what is happening, learning from each other, sharing challenges, successes, and also sharing innovations. This is really key. Uh, because many of the challenges we face today, uh, they cannot be solved on the national level or even within a region. So that's also why these exchanges are so extremely important. There's also currently a, a number of global convergence topics uh, where a coordinated approach or movement in the same direction can be really beneficial. These are questions such as digital financial services that we've just been discussing, also digital financial literacy, cybersecurity, but also how to advance green finance and how to address, uh, address the global threats from climate change to the financial systems and to financial stability. Joanna, the Inclusive Green Finance Department of AFI, which you lead, has been around for two years now. If I understand correctly, you're not championing green bonds or large-scale mitigation projects. But what you're doing is working on how individuals can be empowered to build their own resilience and enhance their mitigation efforts through financial inclusion. And this seems to be quite a new approach. So can you explain what you mean by inclusive green finance and how fintech can accelerate it? Inclusive green finance, it's a quite new policy area. And it's all about how financial inclusion can empower MSMEs and individuals to build their own resilience to climate change and or to reduce their own negative impacts on the environment. As an example, having access to insurance, uh, it can help rebuild after a natural disaster or, or climate events, but also incentivize investments into, for example, more climate resilient agriculture. Uh, one example we see from the AFI network is the Central Bank of Armenia, has been uh, essential in rolling out national level programs and agency on climate risk insurance for the agriculture sector that was previously or is still very vulnerable to the impacts of frost and, and hail. Another example is how access to credit directed for specific green or resilience building purposes uh, can build resilience or advance climate mitigation. One example of this we've seen in Egypt where the Central Bank of Egypt uh, has uh, been a part of lowering interest rates for specific loans for small-scale farmers in order to improve, improve irrigation systems or to reduce water consumption. So that's clearly building the resilience of these other otherwise very vulnerable farmers to the impacts of climate change. But also how access to payment systems can build resilience in times of climate disasters. And, and one example of this is the sand dollar that we discussed previously, providing payment systems and access to funds, even when maybe ATMs are destroyed and other infrastructure is not yet up and running after a disaster. So in all of this, of course, digital plays a very important role, uh, how to reach more people with simpler products, easier access, and with more transparency, that's really important. So we see a couple of examples already where there's an intersect between financial inclusion, green finance, and digital financial services. For example, index-based weather insurance accessed through mobile phones and payouts happening automatically, again, through the mobile phones. Uh, and we also see quite a number of, of interesting initiatives com coming from the private sector. Fintechs providing financial products and services to green and to build resilience. 
but there is really a lot still to develop in this area and a lot of dialogue to happen between regulators, private sector and governments at large. We see great momentum and it focuses more on the human impacted, um, humans impacted by climate change. And that's, I think, what's really novel about inclusive green finance. It's not the large scale investments or the large scale bonds. It's really thinking about the individual MSMEs. How will they be impacted? How will the most vulnerable individuals in the most vulnerable economies be impacted by climate change? And how can they, through access to financial services, be empowered to change this? The IMF estimates that there are 1.7 billion adults without bank accounts. Joanna, can you tell us who are these people? What barriers do they face to becoming banked? And what is AFI's network doing to tackle this? First of all, I need to say that when we work with financial inclusion in AFI and across the network, it's not only about access. We talk about access, but also usage and uh, quality of, of the services and products. Um, and of course, financial inclusion usually is also defined within a national context. So it's not, uh, you know, one definition that goes across. But if we go specifically into a couple of the barriers, they usually split into demand side barriers and supply side barriers. So on the demand side, there are some barriers that restrict the capacity of individuals to access available services and products. And these include socioeconomic and cultural factors lack of formal identification systems, inability to track an individual's financial history, low levels of financial literacy, and the absence of appropriate consumer protection mechanisms. Then again, on the supply side, there are some barriers such as transaction costs and poor regulatory frameworks that hinder the quantity and quality of financial products and services. And also, when it comes to barriers, I think it's very important to look at the specific barriers faced by some of the most vulnerable groups in society, youth, women, forcibly displaced persons, and people with disabilities. So in the AFI network, we work with all these specific barriers and how to ensure that as many adults as possible can be financially included. And AFI, uh, it's a policy leadership alliance owned and led by the members who are central banks and financial regulatory institutions. And all of them, they have a common objective of advancing financial inclusion, not only at the country, but also at the regional and international levels. So what we concretely do is we partner with the regulators, international organizations, but also with the private sector leaders to drive particular solutions and to facilitate the implementation of impactful policy changes through peer learning, through knowledge exchange, and peer transformation. Now, Joanna, I've got one last question for you, and perhaps it's one of the biggest issues that we're talking about at the moment, that there's, there's this big challenge facing all people, regardless of where they live, and that's digital financial literacy. Now, from your point of view, how bad are things, and, and what are the stakes if people lack this awareness? I think this is a really important question, and, and what's really interesting about it as well is that we're all facing very much similar challenges, no matter of, of where we are on the globe. This is really a question of global convergence. And I think that's also laying the ground for a truly global conversation uh, around this issue of digital financial literacy. We can also see that COVID-19, it's accelerated the need to promote financial literacy as an essential tool for individuals to manage their financial affairs and to build greater resilience. So really, this is, this is at the core of so many discussions right now. 
This has also been been clearly seen in the AFI network. Just late in 2020, there was a three-day capacity building event championing AFI peer learning model and enabling participants to gain knowledge on design, on implementation and monitoring of national strategies on financial education. And this event had a specific focus on digital financial literacy. So there was a lot of examples shared and also some some potential solutions floated and, and discussed. And there's been a lot of similar events and trainings, and they've been held also in other regions, and there are several initiatives on the way. So I wanted to share a couple of these these initiatives because they are quite different, and there are very interesting things happening around the globe. The first one is coming from Rwanda. Rwanda is undertaking a, a quite large campaign to increase the use of digital financial services across the whole country. And this includes enhancing awareness, skills, and capabilities on how to use digital financial services. And their focus is to increase digital payments, and this is especially following the COVID-19 pandemic. In Ghana, there is a campaign on the use of the national QR code to educate the public on the use of this specific QR code for payments. And in Egypt, we see a digitization of the alimony program and providing education for the beneficiaries. There's also some countries that break it down further, so to have specific initiatives for for specific age groups. Uh, Because I I also see that there's very different challenges when it comes to digital financial services and literacy if you're 19 years old or if you're, for example, 82. So in Malaysia, they have a specific program on digital financial literacy targeted at the silver generation, so the slightly older generation. And uh, in Pakistan, uh, they have the first first ever e-learning financial literacy game implemented by State Bank of Pakistan through its National Financial Literacy Program for Youth. And this game, it consists of the story of two entrepreneurs who have to take business and financial decisions and points should be collected to receive a certificate for successfully completing the financial literacy training program. So this is a quite innovative way as well, targeted naturally at at a younger generation. Also in in Bhutan, the Royal Monetary Authority of Bhutan has introduced the concept of youth ethics, and that's towards enhancing the youth's general competencies and financial capabilities. This program is targeted at youth below the age of 18, so, so quite young people, and the program aims to educate youth both that about the importance of lifelong financial skills such as saving, but also around ethical values and financial capabilities. So there's really quite a number of examples from across the AFI network where regulators and policymakers, they come in to educate or to build the knowledge, skills and capabilities of specific uh, financial services. And I think it's clear that it's needed more than ever in, in today's digital world, but also where things are developing so rapidly. Joanna, thank you so much for sharing these examples and for speaking to us today. Thank you so much, Jess. It was a pleasure joining you. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on delano.lu.